You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year to you all. Uh, you're welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of Northwestern Illinois and Eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and to kick off 2023, I'm very, very excited to have as my guest, Fiona Hill. Many of our listeners out there may recognize Fiona as a national security official under former President Donald Trump and a, and a witness, one of the key witnesses at the 2019 impeachment hearings. But what attracted me to her in addition to that is that she's also an author of a fascinating book that I'm sure our listeners are going to relate to as I did. It's called There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. I had a chance to participate with Fiona at a, uh, a conference sponsored by the University of Michigan in Brookings here recently, and she's got some interesting thoughts on this that, again, I think our listeners will find very interesting. Uh, Fiona, thank you so much, and welcome to Heartland Politics. Oh, thanks, Robin. It's great to be with you. I, uh, I was reading your book, and it's just uh, so interesting to me uh, your upbringing and how the parallels to the heartland here in the Midwest and some of the things we've been through economically and culturally. Um, just talk about that a little bit, where you're from, what it was like, and uh, and then the parallels, I guess, you saw not only with the United States, but with Russia. Yeah, well, um, thanks, uh, Robin, for framing it uh, this way. <clears throat> I mean, just one thing for uh, listeners, uh, right away off the bat that my husband's family are from the Midwest. Um, his parents uh, originally from South Dakota and then, you know, moving across uh, through uh, Minnesota and into Illinois. And he's got relatives pretty much everywhere, including in Iowa and Nebraska and Indiana and all of the uh, main um, heartland states. So I've got quite a connection uh, with your area as well, going back uh, to the early part of the 1990s when we first started uh, going out with each other and you know married in 1995. So I'm very familiar with all of uh, the areas where uh, the listeners are living at the moment and maybe some of my relatives, uh, my in-laws might be listening. But um, my whole uh, perspective on work and life, uh, obviously, was very much shaped by the place that I'm from. So I was born in uh, County Durham in the northeast of England um, south of Newcastle on Tyne, for anybody who is unfamiliar with that uh, part of the world, Newcastle on Tyne obviously is the major city in the region. But County Durham has been famous for coal mining, no joke going back to the Romans. The Romans first, first started uh, mining coal there. It was a very important centre of anthracite coal mining, so some of the richest uh, energy containing coal there is. And it's part of um, a giant coal field, probably the biggest in the world, that extends from the northeast of England all the way down through the rest of England across the North Sea and into the Ruhr Valley of Germany, uh, which makes all kinds of interesting connections that came up in that conference uh, that you referenced earlier that you and I uh, took part in. And County Durham uh, prospered on the back of coal mining. Uh, it was the cradle of the Industrial Revolution, the uh, literal location for the development of both the freight and the passenger railway. One of the first places that um, steel was smelted using the Bessemer converter, for example. I mean, anybody who's been in the steel industry will know all about that um, history. 
And so the whole of Northern England was dominated by heavy industry and large scale manufacturing, shipbuilding, railways, steelworks, coal mines, but everything centering around coal. And after World War II, uh, what's significant in terms of uh, the regional development is that as a result of the United Kingdom being cut off from the rest of the world and global commerce and European commerce, for five years of the war from 1939 all the way through to 1945 all those industries that had been geared towards war production just couldn't bounce back it wasn't like in uh, the heartland of the united states where all of the big factories switched towards making tanks and airplanes but then managed to switch back to auto manufacturing very easily uh, many of these uh, companies were just literally on their last legs there'd be no investment and uh, no private sector to keep them going and as a result, the state stepped in and everything was nationalized. So when I was growing up, I was born in 1965, everybody I knew worked for the state one way or another, um, either British coal, British steel, British shipbuilding, British rail, the British denoting that it was written by the state, or eventually uh, the National Health Service, which was set up in uh, the 1940s after World War II to help um, stimulate the recovery from the war. Uh, the peak uh, period after the war was the 1950s for coal mining and steel and everything, uh, even under the uh, nationalised uh, sector. But really the decline in the rot sets in by the 60s. So my dad uh, ended up losing his job repeatedly. At one point he was thinking about actually emigrating to Pennsylvania to the Lehigh Valley. People were recruiting uh, Durham coal miners there because of their skills in anthracite mining. And it was the same obviously in many parts of uh, the United States, Ohio, Pennsylvania and um, Appalachia, for example. But eventually um, that proved not to be possible because he was looking after his parents who were elderly and in ill health, he couldn't take them with him. And so he ended up getting a job in the local hospital and was for many years a hospital porter. But the whole identity of my father and everyone around him, because everyone in his family on the mill side was a coal miner and everyone had grown up in coal mining uh, small villages all the way you know, for probably 200 years, um, that basically pulled the rug out from underneath them. And when I came along 1965, the whole region was in free fall because the industry was faltering. And in the 1980s, uh, there was a mass privatization under Margaret Thatcher who came into power in 1979. And things went from bad to worse because the privatization uh, basically resulted in a massive downsizing of the labor force and most people uh, had no other qualifications from the heavy industry that they'd been working in. And there was no recourse there for mass retraining, particularly for the older um, employees. So people like my father ended up unemployed and we had 1.50% unemployment in our town, male unemployment, and many of the women weren't counted there because you know they mostly didn't have uh, full-time jobs. So my whole uh, childhood was one that was marked by poverty. So my father's uh, loss of his original job and then a very low paying job as a hospital porter. My mother not working for a long time, although she'd been a midwife um, in the hospital, but there was no childcare. So when my sister was born, she couldn't keep working and was out of work, uh, apart from childcare, obviously, um, for a good 12 to 14 years after that. And then, you know, in the town around me, just basically seeing the collapse of the local economy, uh, no new investment really coming in. <clears throat> people not having any money to spend so the shops got boarded up and it was just a sort of sense of terminal decay and that again really framed my outlook and um, you referenced what I saw in terms of parallels when I came to the United States but also uh, to Russia I decided to study Russian um, in uh, 1984 uh, when I 
realise that I would have a chance to go to college. The title of the book, There's Nothing For You Here, is what my father said to me around that time in the uh, early 1980s, when we realised that because of the expansion of public education, that I was uh, doing well at school and that actually if I continued to do well, I'd get a chance to go to college. And because we were such low income, our local education authority, the local state government, would actually pay for me. Very similar to Pell Grants and other grants that are available or were available in larger amounts in the United States back in that period of the 70s and uh, 1980s. And my father was basically saying, look, if you get some qualifications and you go to college, there's nothing for you here. You're going to have to think about where you go next because you won't be able to come back here and get a decent job or any job. And that was a pretty daunting thing to say. But I decided in the 1980s, and we can talk about you know why later, to study Russian. And I got a scholarship uh, to go to Russia in 1987, which is against the backdrop of the Gorbachev and Reagan uh, summits and everything that was kind of going on there at the, towards the end of the Cold War. And I was struck immediately by how similar the Soviet Union was to the north of England. Everything, of course, there was nationalised, it was centrally planned, the economy was collapsing, there was nothing in the shops. Now, there's nothing in the shops for a different reason from how it was in the northeast of England, where there was no demand because nobody had any money. But in this case, in the Soviet Union, there was lots of demand, but there was no supply because the economy had run out of steam. And then later, when I became a professional researcher on what was going on in the transition for away from the Soviet Union after the collapse of the Soviet Union in Russia, there was mass privatization in the 1990s under Boris Yeltsin, very similar to what had happened in the United Kingdom in the 1980s. And I saw the same spiraling down of people who just were not prepared for a completely new economy. And Russia was in a disastrous state in the 1990s, which led into some of the politics and the events that we see now. But I came to the United States in 1989 on a scholarship uh, to Harvard University. It was a pretty amazing occurrence. I mean, my parents couldn't quite believe it, neither could I. And then I managed to get this uh, scholarship. <clears throat> and I was struck immediately as I got to the United States in 1989, notwithstanding the fact that I got a scholarship to go to graduate school at Harvard, how much the industrial areas of Boston and Massachusetts uh, resembled my home region. Uh, big textile uh, mills, meatpacking plants, brickworks, auto manufacturing, they were all closing down as well. And Boston was really in bad shape, particularly in some of the, the, the areas like Eastern Cambridge or Medford and some of these areas uh, that are now you know, quite transformed uh, and turned themselves around in the next couple of decades, but other places were not. And there was just also a feeling of decay, perhaps not terminal decay, but certainly deindustrialization and the impacts that that was, uh, that was having. And of course, once I started dating my husband and coming out to the Midwest, I saw the same thing. So I realized that all three countries, Russia, the United States, and the United Kingdom were on the same trajectory, just at slightly different timescales. And also in some respects for different reasons, but part of it, the larger region, uh, reason rather, was the uh, shift in the global economy away from large scale, heavy industry manufacturing to more high tech finance and the kinds of uh, industrial development that we see now. And many regions uh, within those countries were not keeping up. Yeah, when I, when I saw the title of your book, I immediately thought of the movie Hoosiers. I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> yes, but it's I have, about yeah. There's a famous line in there, of course, it's a pop culture movie about basketball, but there's a famous line, you know, a rural area where agriculture was also swept up in the changes, economic changes of the 70s and 80s. But uh, they talked about uh, kids going to high school and then getting out of town as fast as possible. Um, 
And that's what I thought of in relation to the title of your book. Um, very interesting. And and I, I think what what you, you go on in this book, and I, I encourage our listeners to uh, to get a copy. And, and you told me earlier that the paperback version is coming out soon. But uh, um, it, the, this, you know, the consequences of globalization, uh, deindustrialization, privatization, et cetera, it was like a cauldron that was going to boil and just, you know, explode. And it eventually did in all three countries. Yeah, that's right. And look, I mean, part of it is, um, you know, politicians who, frankly, were out of touch and not seeing this coming. You know, if you kind of think about the whole way um, in which um, our politics play out, actually, even in all three places, I mean, Russia probably isn't a place that most people think of as a reference point, especially now, given what's happening in Ukraine with Vladimir Putin. But the 1990s uh, were a really tumultuous and very interesting time in Russia, because you know, suddenly you had uh, the end of heavy um, industry as well, mass large-scale manufacturing. I mean, if you think about it, the Soviet Union was set up as the uh, the state of uh, peasants and workers uh, back at the end of uh, the Russian Revolution. There were mass farms. I mean, obviously not like uh, the Midwest that were in scale, but not in the way that they were set up because these were run by the state, not by uh, farmers. But there was, you know, an effort to try to privatize the land and the crop yields went down and, you know, there was almost famine in some places because it was so hard to keep up with food production and the demand uh, for it. But it really had a, a knock-on effect on politics. The uh, whole process of privatization there was called shock therapy. And it was all shock and no therapy. And it was run by a group of economists who had spent their time actually studying what Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan had done back in the 1980s in the UK and in the United States. Um, equally, uh, shaped uh, in their views by Milton Friedman and the Chicago School uh, of the free market and deregulation and just kind of letting everything you know go <clears throat> in the direction um, of, uh, of travel in terms of uh, liberating uh, the private sector. And all of them had any experience, um, obviously in the Russian context, with the consequences of this and were fairly starry-eyed about the outcomes. But similar, you know, if you think about in the UK, Margaret Thatcher famously declared that society was um, an accumulation of individuals. There's no such thing as community. And she herself was the daughter of a, of a shopkeeper, a private entrepreneur. But as I, you know, as I point out in the book, I mean, if her father had been a, a shopkeeper in my hometown, he would have lost his, uh, his shop because so many t uh, shops in my own town got boarded up because there was no demand. You can't have a shop without customers, no matter how entrepreneurial and gifted you are. If you're in a place where the tax base disappears and all of your customers uh, are impoverished, you're not going to thrive there. So Margaret Thatcher didn't have any concept herself of what happened on the micro level. She was just always thinking about the macro and economics. And similarly, of course, you know, in the United States, uh, so many of the people uh, who ended up uh, in Congress or the Senate or in uh, business were so far removed from the experiences, uh, the owners of uh, major companies, of, of the ordinary workers that, you know, they didn't think about the consequences of suddenly laying lots of people off all at once. And, you know, part of this is also tied to education. In the case of the Soviet Union, everyone had been educated for a very specific context. They didn't know very much at all about entrepreneurial uh, activity. They hadn't studied economics. Uh, they didn't have skills for new economies. Same in the north of England. 
every expectation within the education system, particularly where I was, was that you would, you know, if you were not going to go down the mines or to one of the factories or the shipyards, if you were a, a, a boy, you know, actually the one way out to me, you mentioned Hoosiers, the one way out was to play football, soccer. That's, uh, you know, what we've just seen with the World Cup <laughs> recently, that kind of football, everybody calls it in uh, Northern England, soccer. And, you know, many of my classmates did, in fact, go on to uh, play soccer, some including in the Premier League, but that wasn't going to happen for most people. And uh, for girls, you know, if, uh, you know, you really studied hard, maybe you might be a nurse or a teacher, you know, but, but locally there might not be enough jobs uh, for that. Yeah, there weren't very, um, apart from for a small number of kids, there weren't very high expectations of what you were going to do. You know, if local shops closed down, there were the retail uh, jobs gone and the shop, um, the school rather, uh, prospects if the tax base uh, was uh, low were also quite limited. That's what my dad was basically saying about you're not going to be able to find a job here. There just wasn't the capacity. And at one point we had 90% youth unemployment in the United Kingdom. That was back in sort of like 1981 to 1984, around the time that I'm finishing school, because there wasn't immediately something for kids to go on to after they uh, left uh, left work. And it wasn't the same as in the United States, where you could find these temporary jobs, you know, to fill in until you found something else. People were often floundering around until they find uh, a job for themselves. And that, of course, had a knock-on effect on, on their prospects over, you know, the lifetime of, uh, of their careers. And the educational uh, system wasn't really set up to retrain large numbers of people or give them uh, access to uh, permanent reskilling. Somewhat better in the United States uh, in certain periods. But you think about that time frame of also the 1980s, there was a shift in the way that people looked at education. You'd get a lot of on-the-job training, you might get certificates, but if the factory closed down and the unions disappeared, that was on-the-job training opportunities disappeared as well. And eventually we start to think of education as an individual privilege rather than something that is an investment for all of society, for communities, states and, and the country uh, at large. And Pell grants uh, get diminished, the grants that allow first generation uh, students to go to college in the United States. And there starts to be more of a push towards people taking out loans uh, for their education and a diminution of uh, vocational and uh, other uh, apprenticeships. And, you know, that's led over time to a crisis where in the United States, just like in the United Kingdom and we'll leave Russia to one side now because that's become much more uh, complicated, that the prospects for people without a college degree, be it two year or four year, are pretty grim uh, in terms of maintaining a job. And we really need to get an emphasis again on lifelong skills. My father, that was what happened to him. You know, he basically lost his job in his 30s as a minor. That was his whole identity. It was his profession. He had no other training and he had no prospects of anything other than menial, you know, labor uh, jobs. Uh, hospital porter was the best uh, that he could do. And it was the only real option. Um, even if he wanted to do something else, that was all that was available. That's I, I thought that the, the connect that your, your comments about education and the outlook on it, as far as changing from something more of a community-based and more personal investment-based uh, was one of the major points of your book that made a lot of sense. It Here in the Midwest, I, in the heartland, I mean, people were basically told either to get a college degree or move to where the jobs are. And um, I, I think that goes a long way towards um, explaining some of the, some of the uh, uh, 
antipathy towards our leaders of both parties that pursued globalization and wound up having a lot of these areas like right here where we're at uh, go from voting for Obama twice to Trump twice. Um, and and so I, I, I think I in and of course it also led in, in Britain to uh, Great Britain and England to uh, Brexit. So uh, I, I, looking back, you, you called it um, signs uh, hidden in plain hidden in plain sign events, which I thought was a very good way of putting it. Are we guilty though, Fiona? I mean, I I wonder this myself, uh, having lived through all this. Are we a little nostalgic for the way things used to be? Uh, a little, maybe a little too much. I mean, they're not really going to be that way again. I don't think. Um, can you discuss that and maybe go into one of the one of the advantages I liked about your book was you you actually have some ideas here on providing opportunity in the 21st century. But how is this going to look if we change things and what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I think, you know, you're right about the nostalgia. You know, sometimes that can be toxic. Um, it can be, you know, uh, a positive uh, feeling if you're really thinking about what was good in the past and how you might be able to continue it. But if you're constantly just uh, looking back to the past and thinking, well, it was better then and we need to try to turn the clock, as you said, that's just not going to happen. I mean, my father and um, his family, I mean, again, multiple generations of, of coal miners, uh, they were very nostalgic to the past, sometimes to the point that, you know, I think it was an obstacle. My dad never stopped talking about being a coal miner. It was identity. It was kind of maybe it did hold him back. Um, he was always um, bemoaning the fact of the loss of the, the job, the community, the identity, the sense of purpose, but also, frankly, the salary. Because when he was a younger man, you know, in the 1950s, he went down the coal mines in, you know, basically 1946 when he was 14 years old. And because through hard work and uh, opportunity down there to you know, work as hard as he wanted to, uh, he was also pretty well paid. Uh, he was able to save money. He was able to travel. He was living with his parents for quite a lot of this time and supporting them. But, you know, that really gave him um, a sense of uh, prospects and perhaps a little bit of prosperity, having been homeless, actually, when he was uh, first born and as a child because his father was continuously out of work during the Great Depression, as many people were out in the heartland of the United States as well. I mean, everybody of my father's age had very similar experience in America, as far as I could tell as well, in, you know, particularly in the rural areas and often in the big cities too. But, um, you know, he was constantly held back by, I think, that idea that he'd lost this really great, well-paying job, despite all of the, the difficult circumstances. And, you know, perhaps it did then circumscribe his ability to think of something else to do. He just took whatever he could, but he was also rooted in place. And I think that that's a big problem that people don't realize, which is also one of the issues that we're gonna to have to tackle moving forward. Um, as you said, the idea earlier was that you either go out and get a college degree so you can get a better job, hopefully, in, uh, in the region, um, if uh, jobs are available or you move. And in the United States, mobility was a key thing. I mentioned before that my uh, husband's family started off in South Dakota, went uh, to uh, Minnesota, to Minneapolis, and then ended up um, in Illinois and Chicago. And then other members of the family just moved all the way around uh, the Midwest uh, for work. And mobility was the whole concept and construct in the United States of part of the American dream. It wasn't just social mobility in terms of going up the economic ladder, but it was also geographic mobility. And in the US now, uh, there is uh, a colleague of mine at the Brookings Institution, William Frey, and uh, F-R-E-Y, and I uh, 
uh, encourage people to have a look at the Brookings website, look at some of William Frey's work. It's really excellent. He's a demographer. He shows that the United States is less mobile now geographically than at any time since World War II. Now, that, you know, that kind of ability to move around has uh, faltered, partly, of course, because of the collapse of the housing market with the housing bubble back in 2008, 2009, the financial crisis and the Great Recession, which has had a huge knock-on effect. But there's no longer that expectation that people can move and get a new job in the way that it could before because it's very difficult to move. And in the United Kingdom, it was almost impossible to move. And a lot of people didn't want to move as well. They wanted to stay with their family in the place that they loved. I mean, I'm sure that people listening today think, yeah, I don't want to move from Iowa. I don't want to move from Illinois. I want to stay where I am. So, you know, what do I do here? And that is the problem. We're not going to turn the clock back to the periods when we had the, the big manufacturing jobs and a kind of guaranteed employment, college education of any kind, two-year, four-year community college or vocational training apprenticeships, these are going to be the key. But so then is going to be thinking about community development and also ways in which we can assist people in moving, getting better information, kind of, you know, job clearing if uh, they need to move. That's where, frankly, state governments and national level government come in. It's actually, you know, one of the dilemmas, and this is what um, helped provoke Brexit in Britain, and I, I want to be, you know, careful about this because we do have labour shortages in the United States right now, and ironically so too in the United Kingdom. Even though, you know, unemployment uh, in the United Kingdom has been ticking up um, somewhat as well uh, as a result of the pandemic, but people don't want to move for low-paid jobs, you know, which is where immigration comes in. But also in the case of the United Kingdom, it was very difficult for people to move from my part of the world to a place like London because it was just unaffordable. First of all, they wouldn't have information about jobs that were there in London, the south of England. Just like many people might find it hard to find information about jobs in New York, for example, or some of the other big financial capitals when you're out in a rural area, for example, in Iowa or Illinois. But also just finding somewhere uh, affordable uh, to live when you get there uh, was impossible. House prices and rentals, there was a huge discrepancy and then people would have no contacts. And ironically, it was easier for um, other Europeans uh, from within the European Union, Polish, Bulgarian, Romanian, uh, to move to somewhere like London than it was to come from somewhere like the northeast of England in County Durham or Newcastle even. Because they had consulates, uh, they had uh, representatives, they had networks of people there. There were no consulates for the northeast of England, no consulates for County Durham, no sources of information for jobs apart from in the kind of classified ads. And unless you had a contact, a network, you didn't know how to move. My sister moved to London because someone else from our school had gone uh, down to London and uh, managed to rent a house with someone else and they offered her a place to live and she found a job through uh, a job placement training scheme. But she was one of the few who actually found a job and a place to live in London and other people got put off by it. So we have to think about these mechanisms that if people want to move, how to assist them in moving and at which different levels uh, do these come in? And again, we have all kinds of uh, systems and mechanisms there, but they're not always geared towards thinking about this. A lot of it comes of nonprofits and companies and companies relocating. But in heartland and in distressed areas, deindustrialized areas, we don't have the systems in place to really assist people in the way that we should have. And I mean, I know you talk about this all the time and the conference uh, that we both attended 
touched on all this and trying to figure out ways of tackling it too. But it, it should be uppermost in our priorities, especially when we look forward to all the American recovery plans that have been uh, instituted by the current administration. We barely touched the surface of this book, uh, but we've run out of time, unfortunately. I encourage our listeners, there's a, a Fiona recounts her experiences uh, going to work in the Trump administration, uh, her time there. And uh, I think it would be fascinating uh, to share more about that, but we've run out of time. Again, I think it's uh, uh, an important part of the story here for people to see her perspective on what happened in the Trump White House as a national security aide. Um, <laughs> somewhat frightening, to be honest, but uh, I'll leave that for our, our listeners to gauge if, if they get a copy of the book, and I encourage them to do so. Uh, Fiona, again, thank you so much for being with us today on Heartland Politics, our first guest here to kick off 2023. The book is called There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century, a good description of the problem, but also some good uh, ideas for uh, addressing these issues. Uh, thank you again, Fiona, for being on the show today. Oh, thanks, Robin. It's a real pleasure. I'm, I'm very grateful to be on. Thank you. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.